Well, good evening. We've been walking through a, a series about basically the difference between what Scripture brings forth as a worldview and a way of living compared to what a lot of times our culture presents us. And one of the things that um, is kind of sneakily in our culture is this concept of legalism or the law. And so tonight we're going to talk through the difference between law and grace. And we, we need to define a few terms, but specifically, you know, I've, I've been trying to decide how much time do you focus on one and how much time do you focus on the other. And I really believe that, um, I believe grace is the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe that any time we separate grace from the person of Jesus Christ, we start to miss on all of what that concept and that term means. And so hopefully we are preaching Jesus. We are teaching Christ every week. Hopefully that is obvious and that just permeates everything that we do um, within our church body. And so tonight I want to spend a little bit of time of kind of defining what I believe the law is, what I believe it means to be underneath the law, and then also, again, what would it look like to uh, live in grace and by that power. So real quick, if you would, let's pray together. Father, in one sense, trying to define what what grace is is a a silly thing for me to to think of doing. Uh, I know that you have revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ and scripture and creation, uh, but yet I know that there is so much of you that I don't understand, that you are so far beyond us. But I do believe that you have you have made yourself known to us to the capacity um, that we need uh, that allows us to surrender our lives to you, that allows us to trust in you, uh, that allows us to humbly come underneath you. And so tonight as we talk about these topics, we trust for your spirit to be here as we've prayed, as we've sung, um, and I fully anticipate you making good on your promises that there is a beauty of no matter what happens tonight, no matter what happens in this ceremony, no matter what happens afterwards, um, for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, it is well with our soul uh, because you don't change and what you have accomplished is for all time and your plans will be carried out through all eternity. And so we rest in that and we sit under that and we thank you for the peace that that brings us. So Christ, I pray that you would exhale yourself tonight. Amen. Sometimes I think within Christian circles, it gets a little bit misunderstood when we're thinking of, you know, what is this character that we call the law, and yet we all run from legalism. I've yet to meet anybody that says they're a legalist, um, but yet it's all over the place, right? And so we know these terms that get thrown around, but I think it can be very easy to really start to get confused. Are are we supposed to like the law? Are we supposed to love the law? Are we supposed to hate the law? Uh, Is it good or is it bad? And so I think uh, I'd like to hopefully unpack a little bit of that with you to see if we can clarify some of uh, our relationship to the law. First and foremost, I think the law in and of itself sometimes gets a bad rap around Christian circles, around circles that understand grace. And I think it's uh, not intentional, but I believe the law if we're defining that in terms of God's word or, or God's law given in the Old and New Covenant, then that law obviously is perfect. 
and good. Romans 7, 12 says, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And I believe the law is simply, the source of the law is God. And so I think the law is simply manifestation of the character of God himself. And so I think we need to be very careful when we kind of act like the law in and of itself could be wrong. Not just very careful. That's crazy heresy, really. Um, so, so the law is good. You think about things like the Ten Commandments. Those were the first kind of formal laws given um, to Moses when God gave those to him. And we, we know many of them. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. Uh, thou shalt have no other God before me. I believe that those should be packaged in and viewed in with this concept and with this grid that those have their source is set up in the heart of God himself. So I it, it changed the way I approached this when when it was taught to me that thou shalt not steal. Why not? Because I am made in the image of God and God is not a thief. Thou shalt not lie. How come? Because you are here to be a vessel of the living God, and God is only truth. And so we can see how each of those, they, they, they no longer become simply rules and things that we should not do, but they become a manifestation of the heart of God himself. And so my approach to that changes drastically when I think, is this just something I need to stay away from? Is this just a rule or a principle that I need to keep uh, or, or, or safeguard myself? Or is this the heart of God that has been, in one sense, expressed in a very formal, uh, written, uh, cut-and-dry language that I can understand so that I can start to see how I approach his law, in a sense, is how I approach him. And that's why I believe we're to approach the word, Scripture, as, as holy, as reverent, as God expressing himself. And really, if you look through God being the source of all things, it doesn't stop there. In fact, it goes all the way to what we just discussed, man and woman being created in his image. So in one sense, I ought to approach you recognizing that your source is God himself. And so if I recognize that each individual sitting out here, the source is God, and you're made in the image of God, I will express you or approach you with, with similar value. Now, obviously, each man and each woman has a decision if they want to acknowledge that, if they want to work for that kingdom or work against that kingdom, and that'll adjust and change the way that we interact for sure. But as far as valuing human life, you can see how we value that which um, has its home in, in God, if we value God at all. Second, I think the law was given to protect mankind. And so you think through the character of God, and God declares himself as love and all-knowing, uh, all-powerful. And so all of these laws that were given in the Old and New Testament are laws that protect mankind. And there would be very few people, if you, if you didn't package it in the Bible and with the Ten Commandments, if you just kind of presented, here's some, some moral behaviors to, to pretty much anybody, they would all say, I guess the world would be a much better place if, if we all followed this. It's hard to argue as far as kind of a person's moral compass. So that kind of speaks to the protection of mankind. It's also a gauge for what's right and what's wrong, correct? Not only does it protect, but it's a gauge of what's right and what's wrong. Now, this is where, you know, Evan has spent some time talking about and teaching on absolutism versus relativism um, and recognizing it depends on who you talk to, and our culture is, is vastly relative right now. 
but but there again, there's a lot of moral things that we can look at that I think each person has ingrained in them being made in the image of God. It kind of helps dictate what's right and what's wrong. So that's one of the purposes, and that's one of the ways that I think we're to approach the law. Uh, at the same time, the law cannot make us right. Now, I, happen, I believe that the reason the law can't make us right is simply because none of us can keep it. I really think there's a couple ways to get to God. One of, one of them is to be perfect. But none of us have done real well on that, and there's been only one man who has. And so the other ones, we need, we need a solution for that, and that's Jesus Christ, right? So again, I don't think there's anything or broken with the law, but God knew when he put this in place that those that he put it in place for and to serve and uh, to have purpose in recognizes that there's not one righteous. So the, the law, it can't make us right, but it is a great indicator of what's wrong. A great example would be an x-ray, right? An x-ray will show you what's wrong if I broke my arm it tells me, hey, there's something going on in here. But it does nothing to fix the problem. And so we can evaluate the law. Helps me understand it a little bit where it tells me what's wrong, but it doesn't make it right. First Timothy 1, 8 speaks to this. It says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that it is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless. Again, declaration that the law is good if one uses it lawfully or for its purpose, realizing the fact that it was not made for a righteous man, but made for those who are lawless. So you got to back up a little bit in doctrine and theology and think, well, we recognize and know that all of us were born lawless. All of us were born um, sinners needing salvation. Again, we've, none of us have kept the law perfectly. So I think it's important to recognize the law in itself is good, is holy. It's from the heart of God. A thing that, that we talk about in, in grace circles or in Christian communities that proclaim grace and proclaim Jesus is living under the law is what we tag as bad. And I'm going to define being under the law, as Scripture would say, as any standard a person believes they must meet to be okay with God with others, or with themselves. So any standard that we feel like we must meet in order to be okay with God, with ourselves, or with other people. Think as soon as that sets in, as soon as that belief system's in, and I'm going to tell you it is, and we'll talk about that a little bit tonight and and show you how even though our culture sometimes is anti-church, anti-Christian, how our culture is hardwired, how you and I are hardwired in the sense of our natural-born sinful flesh to function as a legalist, to function based on our performance. Now, most of the time, those things wouldn't, uh, wouldn't directly overlap because we think, man, a lot of the world, they, they don't even acknowledge God, so how can you call them a legalist? And we'll talk about maybe some of the sneaky ways that the law is at work in the world, but also um, I know in my life as well. So if being underneath the law drives us away from God, and I believe that creates us a bigger us and a smaller God, um, something we want to <laughs> venture away from, right? Uh, but, but again, it's, we're not just talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament now. As far as the law being good, I think it's there. As far as the standards that we put upon ourselves or upon other people, again, I think we've expanded the law drastically in that case. Uh, usually it emerges out of three sources. Again, Old and New Testament, but also then it goes to the rules of our society, 
as well as our religion. So how many things that, that you would probably never see at a Rimrock function um, that aren't necessarily wrong. They're not necess- morally wrong in Scripture. I think our church is an incredibly safe place and does a great job with this, not putting this on people. But we have our, we have our rules. We have things that would raise some eyebrows. We have things that a lot of our congregation would kind of buck up against, right? If this was full of whiskey tonight, how would you guys feel? It's not. It's water. (laughs) But there's rules there. Now, does the Bible condemn whiskey? Not in and of itself, right? It condemns being drunk. It condemns being mastered by other things. But all of those things, now all of a sudden sin has a, a, it's not just pigeonholed to one behavior, right? It's a heart condition. All that to say, we have all kinds of standards that we put ourselves underneath. And we approach these as things that we must accomplish. The, the third source is our own self-imposed standards. So this can look everything like I need to get good grades or I must look a certain way or I must be a good Christian. There is only one kind of Christian and it's good. Okay, If Christian is life of Jesus Christ, he's good. So we might not be living that out. But let's uh, get rid of that scale. Okay, um, All these things where... Here's one. We got some, uh, some rugrats running around here usually on a Saturday night. Uh, how about how your kids behave? My kids must behave a certain way or I'm just not okay. Right? And most of the time, usually if you're at home and you don't have an audience, that's not as big of a deal. So you start to see how quickly not only am I performing for God underneath the law, which is backwards and wrong, and we'll talk about scriptures that that address that, but all of a sudden, I'm performing for a lot of other people too, and that's a great example. If When the audience is gone, the pressure's gone, right? Same thing with our appearance, same thing with whether we're good Christians or not. When the audience gone, is gone, a lot changes, but the problem is God's never gone, and you're never gone, and so you can see how this kind of thinking and approach will follow you everywhere you go. And so legalism and being underneath the law will bring about a destructive sense of slavery, a destructive sense of responsibility. And ultimately, I believe it's a destructive sense of self. And really, when you're talking about being under the law and grace, I really think you're talking about two things, self-life or Christ-life. Self-life or Christ-life. And all through Scripture, we're t- we're, it tells us that whoever, well, the concept all through Scripture, but remember in New Testament when it says, whoever wants to gain his life must do what? Lose it. You have been crucified with Christ. It talks a lot about the concept of putting self to death. That's something that I don't think any of us do very willingly. And I don't think it'll ever be complete as far as our full acceptance of that until until Christ comes or brings me home. But it is something that is true. And so I think the rest of our lives are recognizing when we when we forget that, when we have forgotten the purifications of our sins, when we have forgotten that my old self was crucified, when I recognize that I have been bought with a Christ. And so the rest of my life, I believe, is continuing to recognize the truth of that, and then act as if it's true. So I really believe that, again, being underneath the law, and I'll explain this a little bit more, is totally and completely self-centered. 
most of the time, I think we recognize, at least within, within the Rimrock circle anyway, we recognize that salvation is not something that you earn. We recognize that salvation has been a gift. Salvation is by God's grace. That Again, that's why Christ died on the cross for our sins, right? That the purpose and the reason that he died is because we realize that there's something wrong with us. And so we, we usher in the idea, and by his, his faithful revealing to us that we can't earn his acceptance uh, by salvation. And so we say, yes, you're saved by grace and grace alone, as Ephesians 2 says. But I do think there's some different things that I want to touch on that I think are, again, a lot more sneaky. Here's an example. Um, I think the world, I think our culture, and I think my sinful flesh continues to push this thinking. Really trying to establish your own righteousness. So again, for one, you can establish your own salvation, but we're not going to camp on that tonight. But I do think after salvation, oftentimes we try to continue to establish our own righteousness. You think about if you have a problem at times in your life believing that God loves you. Just that in and of itself. Does God love me? And I usually think the problem is because we are so hardwired to looking at our own resume to get love and acceptance. And so we, we kind of look ourselves up and down and we check out um, all the things that we have done or the things that we have not done. And, and every time we do that, again, wh- who's the focus there? Is it God or is it self? It's self. Every time we do that, there are issues that come up. You might even say these false evidences that God doesn't maybe fully love me quite like he does this person or quite like he does that person. So one, you look at your own behavior, you look at your own resume. Two, you listen to what other people say. And three, you look at your circumstances. So again, all of these things are basically focused on everything other than God. If I just did this, God would love me more. If I do that, then I'll be of more value. If I do this, then God must treat me with more acceptance. God must treat me more acceptable. This is a sneaky one, um, this entitlement one, right? There's, there's many people that I talk to when, when I'm engaged in a conversation that they, they're trying to heal from, whether it's addiction or things like this. And entitlement is a sneaky one. And I believe the reason it's so sneaky is Scripture says in Hebrews that the, the Lord is a rewarder for those who seek him. So there's many, many conditional blessings in Scripture where God says, if you do this, I will bless you with that. His love isn't one of them. But so I take this personally, and I, I think in my mind, okay, if I live righteously in this area, if I try to be a good steward with my time or my finances or with my family, then I have this idea of what I think blessing is going to look like. And so I think blessing will come this way and blessing will come that way. And when it doesn't come, guess what happens to my heart? I get angry. And when I'm angry, that's when I start to think, forget it. I'm just going to do whatever I want today. If I want to do this, I'm going to do this. Or I engage in sin and selfishness. Because you know what? I did what I was supposed to do. I did what I was supposed to do, and it didn't turn out how I wanted. You know, two things that hit me this way, time and money. And on one sense, I I used to think, man, are those things big idols in my life? Uh, But yet I'll look at other things and I think, well, I can give my time this way and that, and it's not that big a deal, or I can give my money away and love doing it. So it just didn't always fit. 
But yet, there's times in my life when I'd get highly angry when those two things were getting played with, when those two things were getting messed with. When someone at the store made a bonehead move that made me drive 30 minutes back home, and I had to drive 30 minutes back to the store, try to take it back, and then they wouldn't do it, so now they got my money and my time. That's when I get angry. Okay? But here's the problem. We spent like four days trying to fix a flat tire one time, and it, it was one of those amped up moments, okay? Uh, but the problem is, I started to realize it wasn't just time, and it wasn't just money in and of themselves. It was the fact that I thought I was being a good steward of my money and approaching it as God would want me to, and I thought I was approaching areas of my life, times of my life, as a good steward. And so it had a lot less to do with specifically money and time and a lot more to do with this idea of entitlement. A lot more to this uh, do with this idea of I did what I was supposed to do so you're supposed to respond this way and cause your world to respond this way. See how sneaky that is? And so call it whatever you want. That's performance-based acceptance or favor. I was under the law in that area, and I still probably am in all kinds of areas. But when I start to recognize that, then instead of just battling this sin or instead of just battling this idol, I start to unpack this a little bit and I realize how ingrained I am in this earning God's favor. And again, I think it's hard. There's some tension there for me because I do see many times God says, if you do this, I will bless you with that. The next problem goes when we try to define what that looks like, right? When we try to define what good is. So I think much of this is, why do I obey God? Why do you obey God? Is it out of who you are and is it out of love? Or is it out of what you get? You start to see, if we approach these things because of what we get, the focus is wrong. The focus is no longer in love. We are, we are now entering into this conditional relationship. I'll show you how ingrained this is when we're born and how ingrained this is in our culture where we look to establish our own worth and our own value and therefore how we're to be treated afterwards. Take adoption. Probably some people in here that have been adopted when talking to different adopt- adoptees, many, many times they come to a point in their life where they're asking, what was wrong with me that mom or dad gave me up for adoption? What was wrong with me? Many people who have been adopted were, were placed or given up to adoption when they were very, very young. In other words, they had not performed anything when that decision was made by their mom or dad. So it's totally and completely illogical for them to think there was something wrong with them, and that's why they've been given up for adoption. But again, I think this comes with our sin nature that, again, it it never crosses their mind that this was circumstance, this was dad's decision, this was mom's decision, there was something wrong with them. There was something going on in their life But because we are born with self-life, not just self-centered like, hey, I want everything that I want, but this idea that 
I must establish my value and worth. And that's where you see it, right? Immediately, we look to what's wrong with me that they gave me up. It's totally illogical. I hope you're following that. Think of divorce. When, uh, when you have young kids and there's, uh, there's divorce situations, again, what's the one thing we always try to hammer our little children is this had nothing to do with you. This wasn't you. That's what we counsel them towards. That's what we teach. That's the truth. But yet, why then? Why do we do that? Because we know it's just naturally born for them to look at themselves to figure out what in the world is going on. And so that, too, is so illogical, right? It doesn't make sense as we talk through it. But yet we are just ingrained, and Satan has deceived us into this self-life, establish your own self-worth, establish your own self-righteousness. So we look to self to say, wait a minute, what did I do to make this happen? There's two ways that I think we function. Either with this self-life, either behavior drives and determines your identity, your worth, your value. So those things that you do drive that self-life. Or who you are determines your behavior. Your identity drives what you do. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, But by the grace of God... I am what I am. This is Paul speaking. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So who established Paul's identity? Christ. Grace. What he was given. Because we are never created to establish our own self-worth, even though we all try, because we are never created that way, Again, I think there's this internal war going on within everybody. And so what do we do? We look for other people to give us that. An easy example would be what feels better. If you look in the mirror and say, man, I'm awesome, man, I'm awesome, man, I'm awesome, man, I'm awesome. Or if someone else says, man, you're awesome. That's way better, right? And again, I think it's because the, the design was you were never meant to establish your own. And so we even know this in a silly example that that doesn't go very far, these self-mantras. But again, that's why, that's why praise from another person does wonders for you because it's meant to be given to you. Now, the problem is we start to distort or we start to, to confuse the source where the source of value and worth to be given to me is meant to be God and meant to be by grace and grace alone. But because I know in one sense it doesn't really have the same effect when I try to establish it on my own, but yet on the other, because Satan has deceived me and I've totally bought this idea that self does establish it, I forever live in this position of tension. And now it's not only what I do, but the new formula is basically what we do as individuals and what other people think about us now determines our worth. So not only what I do, but now what everybody else thinks. So now I, I not only have to perform for you, but I, there better be an audience. So now I need recognition of that. Or if I perform for you and I perform well, but you don't give me any recognition, that doesn't do me any good either. So now you realize how much I need you. 
to see me, to acknowledge me, to give me that. So now my value and my worth and my righteousness are in my hands of all the things that I do, and then also in your opinion of me. That feels a lot like slavery, doesn't it? Scripture says whatever becomes your idol, you become its slave. There's this deeply ingrained belief that establishment of rewards and punishment. There's this system based on your performance. So now we, we approach life with this reward and punishment idea. Reward and punishment, reward and punishment. And it's all geared on self. So I think that's why, that's, that's what society does. That's what culture does. That's what our sin nature does. That's what the world does. And I think that's why this concept of grace is so, so hard to understand, so hard to grasp. But I think the only reason it is because we continue to inspect and evaluate ourselves. We continue to look for evidence of why God would love me by looking in the mirror. And I think when we change that paradigm, when we ask why does God love me, when we recognize and realize it is totally and completely because of the goodness of the giver, it's so much easier to believe and accept God loves me. Because you stop looking at what evidences there are in your life. 1 Timothy 1, 8 and 9 says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that it is made not for the righteous, but for those who are lawless. Okay, we talked about that earlier. So what is, how do we use it lawfully? Why is it good? The law leads us to Christ. Again, if we realize it doesn't fix it, but it shows me what's wrong, now I know something's wrong. Who's going to do something about that? But before faith came, we were kept in custody underneath the law. We were shut up to faith. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Galatians 3, 23 through 25. Listen to this. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So does that mean the law is now bad? No. The law is perfect. Christ came to fulfill the law. But we are no longer under that, meaning we no longer use that as our standard to try to perform to achieve that righteousness. Christ is the end of the road where the law is concerned, and one of its major purposes is to lead us to him that we might find forgiveness, purification, and acceptance. The law's job is to force us, if necessary, to see our need for the Savior, the futility of walking in our own power, and to bring us to Christ Jesus so that we can walk in his. Pastor Joseph Prince said something I listened to the other day that um, it just stuck with me. How you feel about him, I don't know, and I don't really care. Uh, but this was good. He said, the law demands and grace supplies. The law demands and grace supplies. Listen for those 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8 and verse 12 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. What does that? All grace. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. 
grace, abounding grace, supplies all that we need and in an overflowing way. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all of your needs. How? According to the riches that are in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1.13, fix your hope completely, a little bit, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely on grace. I'll try to get this guy's name right because he quoted this. Spiros Zodiatus. It's pretty good. Says this. A favor done without exception of return. That's the definition of grace. A favor done without exception of return. The absolute freeness of the loving kindness of God to men finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver. Its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver, unearned and unmerited favor. I think, I think there's an approach that if I, I think that goes into this expectation of entitlement, but there's, there's this idea that if I approach my relationship with God and there's still this evidence of why he should accept me, or why he shouldn't accept me, or why he's pleased with me, or why he doesn't love me. I still think there's this idea that somewhere within me, I am, I am functioning on the, the reality that self has something to do with any of this. Now, obviously, uh, we are partners with Christ in obedience, and I think that comes when I recognize Christ lives within me, and so grace does abound in good deeds, in good works. But so this is when Paul says, I labor all the more, not I but Christ. It's, it's synonymous. It's, it's what Jesus does is what I do. What I do is what Jesus does when he recognizes and realizes this is Christ as life. I don't know if that answered your question or not, Marsh. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, and then we'll wrap up, says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. So it talks about the state and the condition that you and I are in when we come into this life. It talks about the way our culture functions, separated from God, unable to see his face. And so I think even the, even the recognition of that and therefore the need to repent is a gift that God has revealed himself to me. Now when that happens, where is my focus? Who am I, am I going to walk around barrel-chested and arrogant? No way. When I recognize that everything is gift in my life, 100% pure, unmerited favor upon God. Who gets big in those moments? It's God. This whole thing is transferring my focus upon him so that if I happen to do something righteous, I say, praise God for his grace. He just lived through me. And when I do something in and of myself and it's sinful, I say, praise God for his grace, that he's, he can continue to boast 
in front of the angels to say, I know that guy's messed up and he's a joker, but I've saved him. I've transferred him from his kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So now watch what he can do by my strength and by my power. Self-life is being under the law, continuing to look at yourself to establish your righteousness. It will, it will lead to tremendous slavery. It will lead to a destructive sense of responsibility. If you do good in one area, you'll be arrogant and judgmental. If you fail in an area, you'll wallow in self-pity. And it all result, revolves around this idea of continuing to look at yourself for justification, for righteousness, for good standing with God. And I promise if you establish this kind of relationship with God, you will establish it with everyone else in your life. And it will cause tremendous discourse. But if we can recognize and understand that it is totally contingent upon the heart of the giver, upon the graciousness and the perfection of God, it's easy then to accept that he loves you because you realize what kind of perfect God. At that point, then you just have to reckon or, or struggle with the fact of, is, is God good? Is God loving? And I think a lot of you have established that in your life. And if you've established that, I believe that all we are required to do now is transfer this condition of my relationship to him and not to me. I think that's grace. I think Jesus is grace. One more warning. I'm around a lot of people who understand uh, to a good capacity of what this is. And I think as a whole, our church grasps this in, a, in an awesome way. And I think now one of the things that the enemy tries to do is if you have had grace revealed to you, which is total gift as well, then anyone who doesn't quite get the concept, we start to judge. Oh, they're legalists. If that is our hard attitude, I still do not understand grace. If I look down upon those who haven't had the revelation of this relationship being housed in God, y'all, let's never play that card in that game. And we don't have to stand for legalism being taught and preached and we can present the truth. But when my heart starts to kind of elevate myself, oh yeah, they're less enlightened than me. Grace is a concept to me. It's not a person still. Let's pray. Father, there's so much of this that I still think there's, there's layer upon layer and depth upon depth that we'll be searching out for all eternity. And again, I believe it's because we're talking about discovering God. And so I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us, that you would continue to manifest yourself to us in a way that affects our life and in a way that just gives, I guess, a more of a proper picture of who God is in our mind. And so I pray for myself, I pray for all of these that we truly would grasp how good and how perfect and how loving you are and then you would teach me how to transfer my focus upon you instead of myself. That in all of this, 
that I would recognize that you have established who I am and my position before God. And I would simply live the rest of my life in utter praise and humble thanksgiving. And that we would transfer that kind of heart to each other. It's by the grace of God that we can pray. Amen.